This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, Rod Davis. This is episode 55, uh, and this week it's an interview with Julia Unwin. Uh, Now, Julia is uh, a veteran, and I hope she won't mind me calling her that, of the uh, voluntary sector, charity sector, and sort of wider civil society here in the UK. Uh, Most recently, she was chair of the Independent uh, Inquiry into Civil Society Futures, um, which I very much recommend you all go and check out and, and read all the findings of. Um, But before that, um, she's held a a range of positions within the voluntary sector and and beyond. Um, She was chief executive of the Joseph Roundtree Foundation and the Joseph Roundtree Housing Trust from 2007 till the end of 2016. Um, Before that, she was a member of the Housing Corporation Board for a long time, uh, a charity commissioner. She chaired the Refugee Council and she's also done any number of uh, other roles, uh, temporary and sort of longer term um, with the government and within the sector and worked very widely as a consultant and sort of written and spoken a lot on, on issues to do with philanthropy and civil society. Um, it was great to have a chance to have Julia on the podcast. She's someone whose work I've known and admired for a long time. Um, and certainly the work that she'd done with Civil Society Futures uh, had very much crossed over with uh, things that listeners to this podcast will know that, that I'm very interested about. So it was great to have a chance to to talk to her. Um, and we had a, a good wide-ranging conversation, um, sort of taking her work with the Civil Society Futures Inquiry as a starting point and then kind of going from there. Um, so we talked about a lot of big picture issues, as you might expect, things like uh, trust and the kind of the nature of trust within civil society, uh, between the public and civil society and between organisations uh, w- within civil society itself, the role of transparency and openness in relation to trust and also kind of the importance of it in and on, of itself and sort of how we uh, we can ensure it and why we should uh, aspire to it. Um, why there is a particular focus on place and place-based approaches at the moment and what some of the sort of strengths and potential downsides of that might be. Um, I asked Julia for some of her thoughts on whether we should be optimistic or pessimistic broadly about the impact of technology on civil society. Um, We also talked about uh, the kind of changing nature of organisational forms and whether we were genuinely seeing a shift towards uh, kind of looser non-hierarchical models of organization which is something anyone who's listened to this podcast will know i go on about quite a lot Um, and then we had a really interesting conversation um about whether the focus on the service delivery aspect of charities and their role in relation to public services 
had over the last 20 years or so taken focus away from some of the wider value of civil society in terms of its advocacy role or its kind of role in bringing together people and, and communities. Um, so without further ado, we'll go into the interview. Um, I'll be back at the end to do a bit of housekeeping and kind of point you in the direction of various things. But uh, here we go. Enjoy the conversation. Okay, great. So I am here with Julia Unwin. Hello, Julia. Hello, hello, Rodri. Um, well, it's great to, to have you on the podcast. Um, I've sort of been a, an admirer of your work for, for a long time, so it's really a pleasure to have the chance to, to chat to you. Um, and you wear an enormous number of hats and have done sort of throughout your career, but you're here sort of particularly um, focusing on the work that you've done with the Civil Society Futures Inquiry um, fairly recently, which I know we're going to talk about. Um, so maybe the best starting point is if you just say a bit about what that was and, and how it came about and sort of where, where things stand at the moment with it. Well, when I was planning to leave Joseph Rantry Foundation, where I'd been for 10 years, a group of the largest foundations asked me if I'd be interested in being considered to chair an inquiry into the future of civil society. And when they interviewed me, I did say right at the start, I don't think this will be the sort of... Um, I think they were even calling it a commission at that stage, a commission where, you know, five or six great and good people sit behind a desk and people come and give evidence. I think the world is moving rather faster than that. Um, even with that dreadful warning, they were prepared to ask me to do it. And my task was then to appoint a group of people to do a lot of the work and the research and a panel who were going to be part of the inquiry. We met and inquired and visited parts of England, it was only for England, through the period from... April 2017 till we reported in November 18. So 18 months or so. When we obviously commissioned a lot of research and did a call for evidence and organisations like yours submitted brilliant responses and that was all really helpful. But we also went to very many parts of England, um, did some very deep dives in some communities and visited some other cities and talked to people and listened really acutely. And the reason we I emphasize the listening is because my sort of starting point was the way you think about the future is by looking really carefully about what's happening in the present and that many of the changes that are in the margins are actually prefiguring things that are going to happen in the future. I don't know if we were right or not, but when we reported, we were very clear that we were not talking about civil society as it is. We were talking about the changes in the environment that would affect civil society. And nothing in the months since we reported has made me think we got some of that wrong, because actually quite a lot of what we talked about has been happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I know in terms of the sort of framing that you ended up with, you came up with this um, this kind of pact idea. So maybe as a way of kind of distilling some of the findings, you could say a bit about what that was and, and how civil society is supposed to kind of use that. Well, I think one of the things that people were surprised about in the inquiry, although we did say it from the off, but, you know, it's, we always have to repeat these things, is that previous inquiries have looked very much to government to change its behaviours. And there are many things that government needs to do to change its behaviours. But after ref reflecting roughly and listening very hard, it seemed to us that quite a lot of the challenges we were being given and problems that were being unearthed were not only to do with the operating environment in the grandest sense of the word, what's happening in government, but were also to do with the behaviours within civil society and the way in which organisations, 
groups, networks, community organisations were operating. At its simplest, I think what we experienced in that 18 months of investigation was what you would expect in terms of a significant divide within wider society. We are famously divided north and south. We're divided between experience of life in cities and in towns. We're divided extraordinarily so, I think, by generation. We're divided in wealth and an income. All of those divisions, which you would not be surprised to hear us talk about, were mirrored in civil society, which itself is divided between the asset-rich organisations and those who have no money to get by on. Those organisations which are long established, some big, some small, but long established with deep roots, and those which are new and perhaps more transient. The divisions we saw in society, we experienced within civil society. For that reason, it seemed to us that if you believe civil society, which is still a tricky term to use, but if you believe that associational life and how we live together outside the state and outside the market is one of the most important things for the health of the country, we felt there was something that civil society needed to do about its own ways of organising and operating. And we framed it as a pact, partly with a slight sort of reference to the compact which Nicholas Deakin had, I think, so cleverly produced there, which was about civil society's relationship with government. This was a pact for civil society organisations to analyse what they were doing themselves and to look at their own behaviours, attitudes, practices. And the axes we asked them to think about were the first, which is power, where power sits, how power is used, how we generate power as well as share it, because I think one of my reflections was there's a lot of power locked in civil society, which we are reluctant to deploy necessarily, or we don't always recognise, we find it hard to talk about. The second, the A, was for accountability, and a sense which we heard from the biggest to the smallest organisations that for too long accountability had all been to regulators in some senses, funders in others, local authorities, central government. And the emphasis on that accountability had overshadowed and minimised the really important accountability, which is to beneficiaries, members, people in the community, depending what sort of organisation. The C was framed for connection. Um, I argued and will continue to argue that the abiding purpose that goes through our long history of civil society, of what's our strongest purpose, it is to connect. We have connected people with money to people without. That's the core basis of philanthropy. We connect within communities. We connect people who feel they haven't got power with each other. That's the basis of the trade union movement. You, know, you look across civil society, how we foster connections at a time when Facebook likes can be seen as a form of connection. How we foster that deep human connection seemed to me to be something that's really germane to the future of civil society. And the T is for trust. And I'm well aware of quite a lot of the polling that makes it clear that in general, by and large, trust in charities is not a major problem. But there is a problem about the trust between charitable organisations and within civil society. It's absolutely clear to me that we lack trust between funders and the funded. We have a 
what I've called in a book I wrote 25 years ago, a sort of dance of deceit where everybody makes it up and talks about things not entirely accurately. Um, we don't have trust that we, the bigger organisations have the back of the smaller organisations and will back, back them up when difficult. And so trust, yes, for public, the public trust and confidence in charities is incredibly important and indeed in broader civil society. But actually we're not modelling a trusting approach to the way in which we work together. And therefore, we thought that was worth exploring. Now, you can come up with these fancy acronyms, and God knows I've done a few in my lifetime. What struck me about this one is how enthused people have been to talk about it and to use it as part of their strategic thinking, which is you know, beyond my wildest dreams of how people would think about it. Um, and it's become a source of debate and engagement. And I think that's allowing organizations and groups and networks to think about their future strategy in a way that has some reminders in it. Not because there are correct answers. You know, what do you do about power if you feel you haven't got any or if you are accruing it massively? You just have to address it and understand it. And I've taken part in a lot of conversations and their action learning sets and quite an energy behind it. I think it's allowed us to have a different sort of conversation about the behaviours, attitudes, practices within civil society. That's Yeah, that's a really helpful summary of the, the sort of framework and, and the thinking. I think there's a lot to, to pick up on there. Take, taking the, the, the last of, the, of those um, first around trust... Um, it's really interesting that you sort of identify trust within civil society as the the key challenge because you alluded there to to the point that actually the wider public debate has been about the idea that there's a sort of declining level of trust between the public and charities and civil society organizations do you think there is any any truth in in that debate or do you think it's sort of been overplayed or do you think there's just kind of broader issues around trust in institutions that affect civil society just as much as they do any other sector? What, what's your sort of overall take on that question? I, I think it's become a slightly debased debate because of the way in which it's, it's sometimes used just to attack civil society. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the public strongly trust the organisations that are closest to them. And that's true in most things about public services as well as civil society. People tend to trust the primary school their children attend and their GP, the hospital and the health authority a bit less. You know, that's it's, that's to do with closeness. There is a high level of trust there. I think that all institutions have lost um have lost automatic trust and deference. And I think that's generally a very good thing. I think we are a healthier society because we don't automatically think that people with a lot of money or institutions which have large endowments or beautiful buildings are worth trusting for their own sake. So I think we shouldn't worry too much about that. I think that's a progressive thing to have happened, that people are more challenging and more questioning. But it does demand that those organisations and institutions then have to behave rather differently and think differently because they can't just assume a given. Um, I think most of the big charities in the UK and certainly most of civil society have absolutely got that. I think there are some who are still behaving as if they have an automatic right to exist. But actually, most organisations are really conscious of that. The risk is it becomes a debate, as was said to me quite recently by a big provider organisation. Oh, well, most of our service users are very happy with the service we provide. I think that's missing the point. 
The point is about trust in the institution, not trust as a consumer that you get a relatively okay service, which people don't talk about trusting their butcher because they're not getting poisoned meat. They have trust in the institution that it will be there for the long term, that it's there on their side. So I think it's a more complex issue than do we trust or not. I think the sector's made great strides on safeguarding, on transparency, because only 20 years ago, people didn't really understand the accounts of philanthropic organizations. Things have moved on. Um, I think on chief executive pay and on fundraising, a lot of things have been done by the sector. But it's never a done deal. Trust is easily lost and it's hard, hard work to build. Um, and I think the same is true within civil society, which is why I've made that emphasis as much as trust from the public. So answer to your question, yes, I think there is an issue which we share with Church of England, the Royal Family, the House of Commons, you know, most you know, all of all institutional locuses of power are struggling. Um, but actually, I think civil society is probably addressing it a bit more than others. I think what we shouldn't do is hide behind data and say, look, guys, it's quite all right, the public trust us. I think there is always a job of work to be done. Yeah, no, I, I think a, a lot to, to agree with um, there. I think one of the things you highlighted there was potentially the the importance of accountability and, and I guess transparency as a mechanism for accountability in, in terms of ensuring people have trust in those uh, those institutions in the future. When it comes to that transparency, I guess there most people would sort of agree that more transparency in the round is a good thing, but actually then the, the question of what it actually is that you're being transparent about and to whom I think starts to divide opinion with, within the sector. And certainly when it comes to the, the public, actually, you know, some people would say, oh, everybody wants, you know, extremely complicated, rigorous, you know, metrics on, on impact, whereas other people would say that's really not what the average person is interested in. What What do you think... You know, in, in terms of the, the sector taking on this challenge of trust and thinking about and addressing it through transparency is most important. I'm really uncomfortable with the term transparency. I think this is about being open and straightforward in what you do um, and recognising that at different levels, people want different sorts of information. But truthfully, I think the horse has bolted, if that's the right metaphor on this. Scrutiny is the new normal. All organisations will have people looking at them. I mean, just look at Glassdoor and what it's doing for employers up and down the country, because the voice of employees, sometimes completely inappropriately, sometimes really unpleasantly, is being heard and is having an impact. And I think we have to recognise that in a digital age, it's, it's an out-of-date concept to think that we can um, choose what we share and what we don't share because what we don't share people will want to find out about anyway so you know I would always go for maximum sharing of information I think commercial and confidence discussions feel very last century in a sense so clearly there is a legal framework around that but actually what people want is to, an understanding that institutions are as open as they expect them to be which is it's glass doors, it's all the glass um, glass pockets in the United States. It's all of those frameworks which say, this is not your money, you exist to serve the communities in which we operate. That's an enormous privilege that we are stewards of money on behalf of people in communities. Of course, we have to give an open and accessible account to that. I'm with you. I don't think that requires immensely complicated metrics and impact measurement of a sort that is 
interesting, it may not be useful. But from time to time, that is what people will want. And we have to be able to share that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the things I was thinking as you were talking there is there's, there's sort of openness or you know transparency, if you don't necessarily want to use that term, on how uh, institutions within civil society use their money and the expectations people have of that. I think one of the interesting things we're seeing at the moment is an increasing focus from the public on where the money comes from in the first place. So I'm thinking about all of the controversy around uh, the Sacklers and their philanthropy or the kind of divestment campaigns that are being aimed at foundations. Do you think that's something we'll see more of as well? Oh, I think we will. Um, And I think it's really difficult. I mean, on quite a lot of these questions, I don't think there is an easy and straightforward answer. You know, most of us are not stupid. If it was a straightforward thing to do, we would have done it before. But we are, in terms of how we're being questioned, we are part of a bigger world. So, for example, the discussions about the very small numbers of people in civil society who have got investments to steward and need to be really careful about how they're doing it are joined with companies across the country. I'm on the Financial Reporting Council. A real concern that investment and the owners of investments, which is all that philanthropic organisations are, the owners of companies, are driving the right sorts of behaviour. I worry a bit about what you do about your historic growth. And I know that some of the American critiques talk about that as well. And I understand precisely where they're coming from. I think it's hard to know what philanthropic organisations should do about that. But I know that in terms of current investments, there's a legal framework which enables you to invest in ways that further your charitable objects, but there's probably an increasingly public reason for doing so. And that doesn't mean sacrificing returns. It does mean being very intentional and thoughtful in the way in which you invest. And I know because I ran a big foundation for a long time, this is difficult stuff and not straightforward to do. But when we at Joseph Rowntree Foundation started asking questions along with others about payment of the living wage and employment practices, it wasn't transformative. It never is transformative, but it is influential and it starts to shift things. Absolutely. Um, another thing I, I wanted to ask about, which sort of touches in a different way on the the issue of um, uh, trust in, in institutions, is it strikes me, apart from sort of openness or reporting, another way in which you could enhance uh, trust is by greater and in direct involvement for people. And that's, I'm sort of interested in your take on things like the participatory grant making approaches that we're seeing, uh, largely being talked about rather than done at the moment. But I think there are people doing interesting experiments. Yes. Um, do you think, it's... do you think, do you think that is a potential, you know, avenue that far more funders should be sort of thinking about to address some of these challenges? I I think that all sorts of organisations should be thinking about how they involve people in making some of the tricky decisions they make. You know, I know of housing associations who, you know, are having to think through how they engage people in decisions about local planning and decisions about disposal of properties and all of those really tricky decisions. And they were... 10 years ago, they'd have been done in the boardroom. Now that feels completely out of time, far too risky reputationally, whether you think it's right or wrong, good reasons to involve people. And I think participatory budgeting, which has a long and glorious history in the public sector outside the UK, um, is, is part of all of that. It's allowing people to think through and enable them to take part in difficult decisions. I always say that you know, if you're asking poorer households to help you manage your budget, they're the ones who know far more about it than most of us who 
have been privileged to run big organizations. Participatory grant making, I think, has got real potential and a real risk of it being just about spin. Um, when I was at Joseph Rush Foundation, again, we involved people with dementia with some of our decisions about grant making for people, for organizations serving people with dementia. We got valuable insights. I think people learned a lot who were doing it, and I felt very privileged to hear from them. But you shouldn't pretend that you are therefore moving the power and the actual responsibility to those people. And maybe to do so isn't the right thing anyway. I'm very conscious of some of the interesting things about participatory um, grant making in small communities. Funder still has power to make decisions and I think has to be careful to do it in a way that doesn't just leave individual members of communities incredibly exposed. That being said, it's not surprising it's taking long to do. Um, we have to get it right, but we have the only way we'll learn to get it right is by making some mistakes along the way. That sounds like a roundabout question. I mean, what I'm saying, I think, is it's, it's part of a suite of activities. And if we just see delegating decisions about funding as on its own good enough, we're missing the point. I think it's about building capacity in communities to make really difficult and challenging decisions. And we have to do that, my phrase, which I've copied from Kirsty O'Neill, at the speed of trust. People will not trust organisations that do it in a careless way, don't stick with it, don't support all the way through. And in a sense, that's why it's right that it's taking time to happen. But it does have to happen. Uh, absolutely. And I think that point about ensuring that when you give people responsibility for decision making, you actually give them the the power and the you know the information they need to make those those decisions. Otherwise, it's it's entirely sort of unfair to do that. is is very important. I think we need to recognise the high price people pay who take part in these things. In the 90s, there were a number of very big estate regeneration schemes that involved tenants and residents as board members. They were board members for building schemes that were taking you know, seven to 10 years and were very controversial and very difficult. And I look back on that time and wonder if we gave enough support to people whose lives were really upended by that. We said to them, you can be the board member, but actually it affected every aspect of their lives. Absolutely. And I, just when you were saying about it happening at the speed of trust, I mean, I, I wonder whether one of the the real barriers to this in moving it beyond the sort of positive rhetoric about devolving power further to, to people and communities is the the sort of fundamental shift it takes on the part of institutions and funders in terms of being willing to trust those people, genuinely trust them to make those decisions, even when those decisions will sometimes result in outcomes that you yourself as a funder would not necessarily have prioritised. And and that to me seems like potentially a big psychological barrier. I think it's a huge barrier. I think we have to be a bit grown up about it. I realise we've made big mistakes by doing it the other way. So Yes, people will make decisions that the funders might not have made, but the funders have made some bad decisions in the past. All of us have made mistakes. We have to recognise that's what happens. It's you know the risk is the risk of bad mistakes is always felt by the most local and most impoverished organisation, not by the funder themselves. So yes, I think there is a real psychological barrier to jump, but we have to we have to get over it. Um, and, and leading on from that, because um, one of the things you mentioned there was about sort of locality, and it's obviously it's not the same necessarily as the, the devolution of power down to um, the lowest level, but in practical terms, it often ends to ends up overlapping. And I know place was a sort of key theme in the work of the Civil Society Futures Inquiry, and it seems to be something a lot of people 
are talking about in civil society more widely. Do, what's your sense of kind of why all of a sudden everybody has latched onto this seemingly quite old-fashioned idea about acting in places? Yes, it sort of surprises me that it's become such a thing when I, I suspect I think it's always been around. I think public policy became a bit place blind in the 90s and perhaps the early 2000s. I think the rhetoric of what matters is what works, which was the new Labour rhetoric, was rather insensitive to issues of local connection and local engagement. So, you know, I've been around long enough to remember discussions about you know, we should only have the hospital, people should go to the hospital that can provide the absolute, the very best service, whatever illness they have. And then MPs and politicians and local authorities being rather surprised that people were so upset about losing their local hospital. I think we became insensitive to the very deep bonds people have in places and the importance that people's locality, and I use the term carefully because I think it can be level of neighbourhood, borough, city, depending who you are and where you are matters enormously to people. Um, The statistics about the vast majority of people still live very close to where they're born, which the ONS have produced, 87% of the population still live 13 miles. I think I've got those figures right from where they were born, is is one way of looking at it. But I think it's deeper than that. I think most of people's lives takes place in quite a small area. And the research that my previous organisation, Joseph Rantry Foundation, has done about the Brexit vote, which I thought highlighted quite a lot of this, really shone a light on the fact that, yes, people were divided by income and between towns and cities, and all those divisions were clear. But there was also a really big divide about places, and that there were some places which felt as a whole, they were overlooked, they had been kept back, they hadn't benefited from globalisation. And this is not about poor places alone, because there were a lot of very wealthy places that voted to leave the European Union. Um, I think that allowed people to have a new think about perhaps this thing called place really matters. And it matters to people emotionally. And I think written about this, public policy and I think much thinking in civil society can be a bit blind to that emotional sense of engagement and connection. That's a, a really interesting point and um, goes to something I wanted to ask you sort of slightly wider than place but touches on what you were saying about sort of public policy becoming place blind. Do, do you have any sense that actually policy or the political narrative about charity and the role of the charity in civil society for the last 20 years or so has has become largely an instrumental one about the role that it plays in delivering services and actually the value of charity or civil society as an activity or a sort of convening space has been has been sort of ignored i think within civil society the vast majority of civil society organizations are still concerned at a local level, with associational life, shared activity, how we share things and do things and change things. That's the vast majority of all of civil society is about that. I think a few organisations, both local and national, because of the outsourcing environment, the contracting culture, um, were were quite rightly and understandably engaged in the delivery of service. We've always delivered services in civil society. Question is, on whose behalf did we do it? 
I mean, when I started in the 70s working in Liverpool, you know, voluntary organisations, as we called them then, were delivering meals on wheels and visiting old people and running community centres and looking after children in the summer and summer play schemes. That's how we worked and we always have done. What changed is the sense that that could be funded and supported um, on a per capita basis, on a unit cost basis, by local authorities and central government. And that and I was very much part of it, was part of the new public management, became a new way of diversifying services, enabling more choice, um, enabling a bigger range of services, which we absolutely need in our very diverse population. Will you excuse me? There's somebody at the door. I'm so sorry. Sorry, Give me a minute. Hello, dear listener. Uh, Just to explain what's happening at this point, uh, Julia was uh, unexpectedly interrupted by a ring at the doorbell, Uh, which ironically enough turned out to be somebody selling household cleaning products for charity, Um, but hence the interruption. So the next thing you will hear is me just um, reiterating what we were talking about and picking up the conversation from there, so hope the break uh, doesn't confuse things too much. Yeah, just you you were saying there about the the sort of um, uh, emergence of kind of new public management thinking um, around the idea of of public service delivery and and kind of how that had influenced thinking about the about the sector. Okay, just say a little bit more about that. Another sentence on it. We we move from very low levels of grant funding to voluntary organisations to higher levels of contract based funding. And I don't think that in itself was wrong. If you are providing a service on behalf of the local state or the national state, of course, they should pay for it. Um, And it should be done in an open way. And it may well have provided, well, I know it did provide a way of funding some very targeted local services, which should absolutely be run within the voluntary sector and not in local government. The danger was when that became at a bigger scale, um, and and for some organisations, their primary accountability then began to be with their purchaser or their commissioner, which is not the same as being close to the organisations you support. Now, I know many organisations who I think do both very well, so I absolutely don't want to be opposed to public service delivery. But I think the, the rhetoric and the language then became a very difficult one to associate with what I'd describe as the more associational side of the of wider civil society, which is just as important to the economic and the social infrastructure as the levels of service provision we could do. Absolutely. And um, I also wonder whether, as well as the sort of associational side of it, do you feel that it had any knock-on effects in terms of uh, governmental views about the legitimacy of the the kind of campaigning and advocacy role of of charities when when their sole focus mm. seemed to be increasingly on the service delivery side. Well, it's an odd one, isn't it? Because of course, if you provide services, you have a huge amount of knowledge of what's going on. You know, voluntary organisations close to the ground, running good services, are the canaries in the mine. They know what's happening. And they have an absolute duty, I think, to speak up about it. There is a sort of irony that governments of all hues then didn't like what they heard um, because they were being told things by organisations which they'd either paid or hadn't paid to know stuff. But the knowledge that is held in civil society is astonishing. If you think of the big things that have really thrown our political and policy environment in the last few years, they're all things which civil society knew about in the first place. 
the Brexit vote was a surprise to people in Westminster and Whitehall. It wasn't a surprise to community organisations working in Barnsley and Hartlepool. The Windrush scandal, which brought down a Home Secretary and was really damaging for public confidence in our systems, was known about by advisory and advocacy organisations and organisations within the West Indian community for a very long time. So it feels to me as if government is asking two different things of the sector. Of course, they do things, and sometimes that will be paid for by government. But that gives them rich knowledge, which they have an obligation to put in the public domain. And any sort of suggestion that they don't, I in a funny place no absolutely and and i suppose the i mean the cha- the challenge it seems to me is in from a sort of enlightened point of view i can see a, a, a serving politician acknowledging the importance of that advocacy role but the the reality is if they're the one that is on the receiving end of it it's often very uh, challenging or annoying but but i guess your point about civil society potentially acting as a canary in the, in the coal mine there do you think we need to try and convey the sense more to politicians that part of the value of civil society and that role it plays, which is often a bit uncomfortable, is that it can act as an early warning system to to highlight issues before they get to the point where where you're dealing with the consequences rather than uh, dealing with them sort of earlier, earlier uh, further ahead down the line? I think we have to just be really assertive and confident um, that when we're speaking, we have a right to do so. I'm no longer running an organisation, so I have the privilege of now being an observer, but I hope that when I was, I said the same things. In fact, I know I did. That we have a duty to do so and that it's a breach of charitable duty to pretend stuff is all hunky-dory when it isn't. Um, that we are, you know, we'd therefore be denying the experience of people we're working with. Um, and that in a really complex democracy, and Lord knows this week we know how complicated things are going to get, the ability of civil society to help deliberate around really difficult issues, to raise alarms when things are going badly wrong, to address issues before they become national scandals, is something that we ought to both assert and demand that it's cherished, that it's a really important part of what we do. We shouldn't be defensive about speaking up about it. In fact, we should be critical when people don't. Absolutely. Um, and one one thing following on from that, I'd like to ask about is you know currently there's there's an increasing amount of focus, which I think is is absolutely uh, right and proper about the the challenge of the global co- climate crisis, and an issue like that seems to me to raise a, a challenge for civil society in that you know a lot of people I think now feel as though incremental change from within the system is going to be insufficient and actually much more radical structural change is required. How much of civil society do you think is is actually in a position to drive that kind of change? And how much of it do you think is sort of locked within existing systems and will will struggle to to kind of call for what's really required? It's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, when you get to a stage when the UK government has declared there is a climate emergency, it feels odd for civil society to be concerned about how how robust should we be in saying what should happen. Um, one of the things that has happened in the last few months is the power and the impact of Extinction Rebellion, which has led to a lot of heart searching within civil society about is this sort of protest movements going to be the new way? I think 
and I think history tells us that we've always had powerful movements and networks and we've always had institutions which have to make decisions differently and that real lasting social change of any sort happens when those work effectively together and when the anger and the desire for urgent immediate change is combined with the negotiating and lobbying ability of institutions who have a different perspective on it. You know, look at the um, institution of gay, um, equal marriage and the role which Stonewall played, which they didn't play alone, they played it with all sorts of angry outriders and people who were protesting in very different ways. It seems to me that that alliance between movements, networks, activists and academics and established agencies has, has run it's like a golden thread through our history. It's always uncomfortable. It always involves the movements challenging the institutions, the institutions being told they're not moving fast enough, the movements ending up feeling betrayed, but the institution shifting a bit. That's part of how we make radical and lasting social change, because no organisation ever delivers an outcome on its own. There's never been a social change that somebody could say, you know, tap, I did that. And when they do claim it, they're making it up because it's always that combination. When on, one of the people on the panel of inquiry for civil society futures was Bert Massey, who sadly, tragically died halfway through. But he talked about the alliance between mothers with their pushchairs and people using wheelchairs and what that did to the transport industry and the intermediary charitable organisations who had to themselves change in response to that huge anger about access. That was the stories of the 70s. You know, we had similar stories in the 90s about AIDS and HIV. Um, we're having this now about climate change. Climate change feels so existential, it's really hard not to um, focus on it entirely. But um, I think the same thing is happening and I think that's how we'll get change. Absolutely. I, th I think that interaction between traditional institutions and sort of looser non-hierarchical organisations, as you say, it's not new, but it's going to be a really big feature of, of coming years. Do you think that there is anything genuinely new about some of the the forms that we're seeing emerge now and the, you know things around things like extinction rebellion, but also Black Lives Matter and you know the response to Grenfell here in the UK? Do you think sort of technology is, is fundamentally changing anything or are they just turbocharged versions of what we've seen historically? Well, can you have turbocharged that is, is so, so extreme that it fundamentally changes what happens? Yes. Um, you know, we've always had activists. We've always had people um, angry and wanting to change things. And that has had enormous power. And recently we've seen through social media and hashtag politics, um, a really powerful movement, you know, Me Too, which is, I suppose, the one that speaks most directly to me and my life. You know, we, there's always been harassment and bad treatment of women at work. That called it out in a different way and changed the terms of the discussion. But on its own, it won't make the changes happen. It's not on its own. The hashtag doesn't do it. What it does is surface issues, create a mass network on a, on a scale we couldn't have dreamt of in the 70s and 80s. Um, but we have to acknowledge where we come from, part of my sort of historian in me, I suppose, to recognise this is a development which has, you know, has turbocharged things. It has created noise and marshaled anger and engaged people in ways that I don't think we could have possibly have envisaged. I mean, I would point to the extraordinary campaign run by Sarah, 
Sarah Ryan went after her son, Connor Sparrowhawk, so tragically died in the care of Southern Health. The way in which that movement of bereaved and angry parents has had an enormous impact on how we now think and what's happening to young people with severe and profound multiple learning disabilities. That wasn't done by the major institutions on their own. It was digitally enabled. It was possible for people from their living rooms to join something that has been dramatically transformative in just the same way that Black Lives Matter has done that and many of those campaigns. So yes, it's, it's, it's big, it's really important, and it changes how institutions have to operate because those campaigns don't have the normal beginning and end. They're not straightforward. They're hard to read. They will include things that feel very abusive and hurtful to people who are on the receiving end of them. They're not mediated. Um, they are nevertheless really important. Absolutely. Um, and in a way that gives us a sort of optimistic take on the potential impact of um, technology and the affordances it can bring on, on civil society and social change. On sort of overall unbalanced, you tend to take a reasonably optimistic view of the impact of, of technology uh, on civil society or society more broadly, or you know, do you also have elements of sort of concern or pessimism? Well, you know, the advent of publishing trans, you know, brought us the Reformation and the printing press, not publishing, printing press transformed everything and brought good and bad things. And it would be naive to think that the campaigns we've listed, which are broadly liberal, progressive ones, which probably you and I and maybe people listening to this podcast think are right, absolutely parallel campaigns and hashtags are going on about things that I don't think are right. What it does, it's it's, it's a platform produces material and enables its quick dispatch around the world and it will therefore change how we do do things i'm positive because i think it gives a voice to people who have not been heard i think it enables people like i mean when i was working particularly on poverty issues i people like jack monroe who ran a blog called a, boy, a girl called jack Tell, brought more attention to what was happening about poverty than many people i can think of i think Kalia Franklin, who had a blog which was very widely read um, about living with a disability and how poverty was driving, creating such difficulties for her, transformative in what she did. But I'm really aware that exactly those same things are driving our politics in ways that I don't feel so comfortable about. And there are racist movements and misogynist movements and um, climate change deniers using just the same technology. So my optimism is it gives people a voice. And I'm eternally an optimist, and I think that really matters and people need to be heard. My nervousness, which is less than pessimism, is that we need to learn how to manage it. And having watched and followed a lot of the stuff about how some social media has, um, well, start the sentence again. You know, we they, the giants of that world say we move fast and break things. They have broken some of our big monopolies. They have challenged things that matter to people. There seems to be a risk they might have also broken our democracy, broken our ways of engaging, and we have to take control over that. And the agenda for civil society must be to be part of a movement for change in how we regulate and what we expect from this fantastically enabling and empowering new technology. We can't allow it to just be a way in which elections are influenced, to use a careful term. And are you reasonably optimistic that civil society is currently 
engaging with those sorts of issues about the impact of technology or in a position to do so? Or I think we've been late to it. I think I think there are some organisations who have pioneered and tried to move the dial, but I think it's the generational shift, and we people like me have to listen to younger people who are who've grown up with it to understand much more about its impact and what can be done to make that impact less. Well, it will always be risky. So I don't want to say less risky, but less deeply damaging. Um, and that's that's what concerns me. So yes, I do think there are parts of civil society that are well able to take this battle forward and to do the thinking. I think the work that Martha Lane Fox and everyone have done has been incredibly significant. I think some of the stuff you've done at CAF about digital platforming is important. But we do have to work together to use the best of our skills to not just treat this as a whizzy new toy, because it's so much more than that. It's just as important as the establishment of the printing press or any other big change we've had. And it's changed what is changing for citizens and how we engage is really profound. Absolutely. Um, and sort of a good point to, to draw things to, to a close, I think, looking to the future. But um, sort of for your money, what do you think are the, if you had to pick, I don't know, two or three key challenges that you think funders and sort of wider civil society need to, to get to grips with over, over the coming years, what would they, what would they be if, if you had to, to suggest them? That's a good challenge. I think that the future for civil society requires civil society to be much better connected to social changes that are taking place and to share knowledge and information much more generously. I think some funders are enabling that to happen, but I think a real challenge to funders is how to work collaboratively with those bits of civil society so that we have a much better narrative to tell, a story to tell about what's happening in our communities. I think civil society has the opportunity to be recognised as, in really troubled times, the glue that holds things together. It's undoubtedly true. We are going in for some politically and economically really rocky times. And I've argued, both in the inquiry and in speeches I've made, that the economy is entirely dependent on healthy civil society and our political world is entirely dependent on healthy civil society. So we have an obligation those of us who are leaders or advisors or supporters of civil society, to raise our game, to be able to contribute. And to do that, I think we need to be fitter and closer to the people we serve. And that's why we talked about the pact, because we believed when we completed our inquiry that a revived, renewed, re-energised civil society, which I think we're beginning to see, has the potential to do really profound things to support our, frankly, rather dented democracy. I think our experience in deliberative democracy, in engaging people in difficult decisions, in chewing through some really complex things, is at the heart of civil society. It's got the opportunity to do things about our terribly divided social system um, and our torn social fabric. Um, And it's got a real chance to do things to mobilise people on this major, major issue of the climate emergency, which won't be resolved only by governments, but it will absolutely not be resolved if the public, as engaged through civil society, aren't making it really clear that we need we have those demands to make of government. So I think the things that we need to do are to focus on big issues, 
funders need to make sure that civil society is healthy and able to deal with this. And I think that requires a more open approach to funding. I think it requires some of the things that some of the most enlightened funders are doing, which is giving money without being over-concerned about exactly how it's spent, about strengthening the resilience of organisations, because times are going to be really challenging. And we have got to get through this difficult period in ways that support the most vulnerable people and places. Um, and, and just as a final uh, thought, are there any things that you're working on that you would like to highlight to people or if you'd like to signpost people to ways in which they can continue to get involved with Civil Society Futures Inquiry or, or pick up on its findings? I mean, I'm, I'm personally very interested in exploring more about leadership and what modern leadership looks like in civil society and I'm very committed that what remains the Civil Society Futures Inquiry, which is not very much, will be enabling a new generation of leaders to emerge. I'm also very interested in understanding more about how organisations work as anchors in places. I think there are anchors in the private sector as well as in the civil society sector, who are which are really pivotal to what happens in those communities. And building on their long history and long connection with those places, I think we have a real opportunity to do things differently. For the Civil Society Futures Inquiry, we intend to carry on working on the pact because there is so much interest and enthusiasm in doing so. We're working with funders about what the ecosystem should be like and what sort of funding arrangements we need, both from philanthropic funders and from government, to enable this renewal of civil society and we're interested in supporting new approaches to leadership excellent well that all sounds extremely positive um i tried to sign up yes it's always always good to leave on a a high note um just remains to say it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast thank you thank you for giving me the time it's been a really interesting great um well yes certainly look forward to to keeping an eye on how all of these things uh, develop in the future and perhaps uh, you know uh, further down the line i can uh, twist your arm to to come back on the podcast and pick up on some of these ideas i'd be delighted thank you very much indeed okay so my thanks again to julia for coming on the podcast it was uh, great to have a chance to, to talk to her um as you can see, uh, and hopefully the various bits of editing I did there to cope with the doorbell interruption and the slight Skype uh, delay at times uh, were seamless. So uh, actually by mentioning them there, I've drawn your attention to them, which was unprofessional of me. Um, but if you were interested in the sorts of things Julia and I were talking about, I will put uh, links in the show notes to, to various things that are relevant. Um, if you're kind of interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, please do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or uh, my other handle at Philiteracy, which sort of focuses more on writing um, and kind of academic publications about philanthropy. If you've got ideas for things that we could talk about on the podcast or people I could interview in the future, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, it just remains to say uh, like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, give us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, because I'm sure that helps, uh, and we will see you next time. Okay, bye!